right at the heart of the Walt Disney Studios is this, Legends Plaza. Dedicated on October 16, 1998 to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. On these walls, you'll find the names of honored artists, performers, producers, and pioneers both past and present. Among the past Disney legend honorees are iconic artists such as Oob Iwerks, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnson, Ward Kimball, and Mary Blair. Brilliant visual artists. Unforgettable performers like Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, Kurt Russell, and actress Haley Mills. <laughs> is this fake sire? Is this... This Hades costume is the stinkiest costume on this brand. <laughs> Babies are often very useless when you need to get things done. Take a puff. Do you fear that? Bing is a sus individual. There's no turning back now. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we are your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode, we'll focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod. Send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com or support us on Patreon by becoming a member of Jerry's Gang at patreon.com. Slash Mouse Madness. Kyle, we just wrapped up, you know, if I can say a very hilarious discussion <laughs> on Disney Badasses last week. I absolutely loved that episode. I listened to it on the Bay Bridge today. Oh, you gave our own episode <laughs> the, the Bay Bridge episode test? The episode passed the Bay Bridge what? test. It was so good. Okay. Um, but, you know, we're, we're moving away from the on-screen badasses, and we're moving into some historical Disney badasses. Uh, this is another nerd topic that's yep. going to get you and me going real good. Yep. Uh, and that topic is the biggest Disney legend. Yeah. Disney legends are an actual thing. That's a title of people within the Disney company. And those are people who have major contributions, made major contributions to the Disney company. They're chosen by this like internal committee. It used to be chosen by... The committee itself used to be chosen by Roy E. Disney. But when he passed away, now it's this kind of like... Who I who knows? I, I didn't see who was actually on this committee. Um, but they have new inductees every single year. And so the program has honored, you know, animators, imagineers, songwriters, actors, and we're going to get into all of those that have made an impact on the Disney company company legacy. Uh, there are over 300 of them. So we're only going to be talking about 16 plus a handful of Miss the Dances. But I'm super excited to dive in. And diving in with us is returning for his fourth tour of duty here on the Mouse Madness podcast. It is Kyle Madsen. Kyle, welcome back. Hey, guys. I never get more excited than when you guys hit me up and are like, hey, you want to do this? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'll clear the deck. Doesn't I mean- moved things around in my schedule <laughs> so I could do this. And we, it's my favorite thing. And we appreciate that about you. Disney Legends, when we hit you up about that, you no hesitation, you were you were down for it. Are you you into Disney history? I know you're into like US history. You'd be reading some biographies over there, but what about this Disney Disney history? So very recently, okay. I was at an Amazon bookstore because I'm a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> and I bought a copy of Disney's Land and I read that and I realized that the the part of my brain that digs reading about like US history also really dug reading about Disney history. So it's a recent dive for me and I learned a lot researching for this episode. Awesome. I have a lot of notes 
on this. Of course uh, on you these do. People because, I, you know, I expect that. I'm like you. I'm like Madsen over there. Once I once I understand the history of something, I want to dive deeper and deeper. So I'm excited to to do that. Um, but before we do, and before we even get into a spoonful of sugar, Chris, mm-hmm. we have a, a a podcast review that I came across. A new one, oh, not really new. What? It's from it's from June. I know that we put out an ask for more, so we sure. we got them and never looked at them, and we got a new one. So I figured I'd I'd read it here on the pod. Uh, it's on Apple Apple Podcast Review, and it's from Kitty at My Foot. Uh, so if this was actually just Nina leaving a review, then we're scamming ourselves by reading this <laughs> live on the air. Kitty at my foot gave us five stars and said, Kyle and Chris bring so much joy and humor to a wide variety of Disney topics. And I love their fresh takes on both well-known and deep cut topics. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Kitty at my foot. <laughs> Whoever you may be, um, go ahead and, and leave us a review. Uh, five stars, like just like that. Just leave us a review. It helps with the podcast get discovered uh, and we appreciate the time that that listener took out of their day but chris we've got we got some spoonful of sugars to talk about um we're recording in person love it you are here at my house and i i knew that you were an agave boy that i do be i knew you're an agave boy i knew you were specifically even a mezcal boy that's true so i went ahead and whipped us up a couple of margaritas yours of the mezcal variety Okay. Me of the tequila variety. Uh-huh. Uh, I've only taken a sip, but but cheers to the in-person recording here and a little. Not, it's not too bad, if I do say so myself. I mean, I would agree. <laughs> uh, I think uh, you can't go wrong with, with mezcal. That smoke always just brings it home. Sure. If there's a, a intense flavor on the front end, that smoke is going to save the day on the back end. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Kyle Madsen, what do you have as your spoonful of sugar today? I've been taking my my health and wellness a little more seriously lately. Oh, nice. So I'm currently drinking water. Yeah. Yeah. Partly for the calories, but also partly because I have not eaten since like 11 o'clock. Bro. So that's bad. <laughs> Bro. I shouldn't be doing that. Nope. But I didn't want to make a drink because... Um, the the lack of food in my system was going to make that make that a tough yep a tough it'll thing. decline so, very quickly. I've taken in other chemicals and we're ready to run. <laughs> okay. Hey, you know, like we love uh, promoting the hydrohome lifestyle on this show. Um, good for your skin, good for your bod, good for your digestive system, good for your sleep. There's nothing. There is absolutely no downside to drinking more water. Nope. As long as you, uh, your, you know, your other systems are working properly, I guess that might be able us to say that there's nothing wrong with drinking water because there might be for some people. Yeah. Or you just need to have a bathroom by you at all times. Yeah, so that's you can, true. You know, that's so. true. Uh, but cheers to hydration. We said it in last episode. Hydration is pretty badass. Mm-hmm. So uh, here we are being sure. Disney legends and Disney badasses. Um Let's talk legends. Let's talk these Disney legends. And to get these 16, we had to have a demographic. And Chris, who did we send the interns to survey this time? Well, the keepers of the official Disney legend list are the D23 group. Yes. It's on D23.com. This is all very like expertly curated. If you want to learn about Disney legends or read up on them or see who they are when they were abducted, abducted <laughs> inducted they could have been abducted. yeah whenever they're kidnapped and forced to draw 700 pages a day 
it's That's all where on, they got their ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all on d23.com. Uh, so it's a phenomenal resource uh, if you're into the Disney history thing. Um, and D23 is coming up, y'all. It is. So uh, we had the interns just scour the internet. Yep. The D23 members were making themselves very known as they submit predictions and things they want to see and express excitement for the coming D23. So we asked D23 members, we said, hey, you guys are close to the Legends list. Yeah. D23 are the keepers of the Legends. D23 members, who's the best legend? Who is the biggest Disney legend? Uh, And you mentioned in your intro, there are tons of them. (laughs) Over 300. There are so many and we had to get it down to a bracket of 16 and the 16 is absolutely stacked yeah big time with disney legends for those wondering walt disney is not a disney legend no and neither is roy oliver disney so uh no like trump cards will be played um but we had some missed the dance obviously yeah because there are so many uh kyle skinner what are some disney legends for you that didn't quite make our field of 16. yeah so the first one for me is virginia davis and she is not super well known outside of you know disney history buffs because she wasn't really part of the disney company when it became what it is but she played Alice in the Alice comedies. So the Alice comedies, and we'll probably talk about it when we talk about some of the people on this list, uh, were these live action mixed with animation shorts that Disney and of iWorks made to really launch off their kind of careers once they made uh, Laugh-A-Gram Studios. And then they came back to Hollywood and formed the Disney Brothers Studios. Or at that time, I think it was Disney and iWorks Studios. Mm-hmm. And so they they were doing these cartoon shorts, but then inserting a live action little girl who would go into these Wonderland right. situations and interact with the animation around her. And that was like super groundbreaking. Others had done it before, but not to the extent that they were doing it. So Virginia Davis was this little like five-year-old girl who played Alice and had to interact with fake things around her. And I just think that's like super, super cool uh, that she kind of, set the stage for what was, you know, Roger Rabbit and these other films that were to come. My second one is Blaine Gibson, who is the master sculptor of the Disney company. Any animatronic and any of those OG attractions, pirates, mansion, all of those animatronics were first sculpted so that the folks who were the engineers could make something out of them or have a model for them. And Blaine Gibson was sculpting all of those. And so really without him, they they wouldn't have had any sort of direction and dimensions to form these animatronics that Disney became so well known for. So Blaine Gibson is another one that I feel like should have been on this list. And my third one is Betty Lou Gerson. And she was the voice of Cruella DeVille, baby, oh, 101 on, Dalmatians, stop, stop, the greatest stop. animated oh film of all time. Betty Lou made it into the legends list for her performance as Cruella, and it's well-deserved. She should have at least been the 16th seed here on this bracket. So those are my three. Who <laughs> are three legends I for you? I was not expecting a forest 101 <laughs> Dalmatians there. Uh, my first one's Harper Goff. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all have had this experience where like you want to do something, but you don't have any friends that also want to do that (laughs) thing. But you meet that one person who's like, all right, this is like my partner in crime for this one activity. And Harper Goff was Walt Disney's train. Oh, yeah. 
partner in crime. Oh yeah. Uh, they met in a train boys. in a train like model train shop in London. Uh, they became buddies talking talking shop about trains. Yep. Walt brought Harper over to the Walt Disney Studios where Harper Goff built sets for movies like oh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, mm. which won him an Oscar for art directions and special effects. Heard of it. Um, outside of the Disney company, though, is kind of like how I think of Harper Goff. Movies like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty much all the sets in that movie are Harper Goff joints. So I really like him as a, as a creative guy. He was also in the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 band. Dude. Which is like a classic kind of like Disney employee uh, motif. Number two, Mr. Dance, Marty Sklar. This is kind of a more modern Disney legend that some of y'all might know if you watched the Disney behind the scenes stuff that was on the Discovery Channel in like the <laughs> early to mid 2000s. Marty Sklar was all over those things. Marty was a, was a businessman. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was in charge of Disneyland's publicity and marketing for many years. Started out uh, writing the Disneyland uh, newspaper. Yep. Um, and he kind of became the key ingredient in like forming corporate partners partnerships with, uh, you know, businesses to partner with Disney to get them to pay for the stuff that Walt was trying to build. So a super necessary cog in the wheel. But the thing I think is coolest about Marty Scalar is that he is the only human being to have attended the grand opening of every single Disney park in the world. How crazy is that? Uh, And there will never be another. Nope. Uh, Third one, I just want to throw in there, kind of a combo Disney legend, Jim Henson, George Lucas, Stan Lee, Barbara Walters. Right. These people that are like masters of their industry or their brand. They're not so much legends of Disney in my eyes, but they are like legends of life. They're like legends of culture. And I'm glad that Disney has kind of credited them because they are profiting so much on like their respective IPs uh, nowadays. Totally, totally. I'm glad they're getting credit where credit's due. Kyle Madsen, any Disney legends that you see that have missed the dance here? Two glaring omissions. First, Whoopi Goldberg. Okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the woman has an EGOT. True. Yeah. Me, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. And she's not going to be on the legends list. Yeah. Outrageous. Um, blasphemous. <laughs> and I will be writing a sternly worded letter. Uh, the second one, Kurt Russell. For his portrayal of her Brooks in the movie Miracle. I mean, come on. Should have gotten, uh, should have gotten in just because of that. Yeah. Uh, on top of all the stuff he did with Disney as a kid. So just two outrageous omissions. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of great actors that like are on this Disney legends list. Mm-hmm. It's like anyone who was involved with Mary Poppins in any way, <laughs> anyway, is a, <laughs> is a Disney legend. Yeah. Like the, the little girl who played Jane Banks, uh-huh. like is a Disney legend. Yep. Um, and she was in a few other Disney things, but it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you do, they do do that. They if you were involved in actors. anything, in anything like remotely popular, you probably made it onto the Disney Legends list. Like Robin Williams really only did the genie and only for Aladdin. Uh, and Flubber, then, hello. And, well, Flubber, of course, I can't forget that. Uh, and then had a falling out with Disney. Oh, and they so they couldn't use his voice in like right. the sequels or any of the TV stuff or the park stuff. And and yet here he is as a legend. Like if you were in a popular thing that did a really good job one time, you're probably on this list. But we have 16 that did make it here. Not Whoopi, not Kurt Russell, but 16 others. And it is time to announce this field of 16. So let's cue 
that dramatic music. And here we go. All right. Coming in at number one, he needs to be our guest because it's Howard Ashman. Sitting at the number two seed with some childlike wonder is the artist Mary Blair. Coming in at number three, he's only got two letters in his name, but they might as well be OG because it's Ub Iwerks. Building mountains at the number four seed is Tony Baxter. The original X-Man. Coming in at number five, it's Xavier Atencio. Sketching up pirates at the number six seed is Mark Davis. Chilling in the background at number seven, it's Claude Coates. Dressing up pirates at the number eight seed is Alice Davis. The Tat Man himself. Oh, Big Bob Brand coming in at number nine is Bob Gurr. Sitting in the model shop at the number 10 seed is Harriet Burns. The human Swiss army knife opens at the number 11 seed. It's Ken Anderson. Making some weird things at the number 12 seed is Rolly Crump. Mickey's BFF clocks in at number 13. It's John Hench. The concept king himself at the number 14 seed is Herb Ryman. Uh, we've already talked about Bambi's daddy, but let's talk about Thumper's daddy. (laughs) Coming in at number 15, it's Bill Justice. And rounding out the round of 16 is a powerhouse duo of songwriting fame. It is Dick and Bob Sherman, Kyle Madsen. We heard that you were stoked to get onto this because you wanted to talk history. You want to talk legends. Is there any matchup here that excites you the most to dive into? All of them. Okay. Because usually when I go through and I I, I do, I just kind of do like notes on my phone just sure. to, to prep for this. And every time I try to find like the, the seeds outside the top three that could realistically win it. Yeah. And it was every like every bracket I've done. It's like 14 through 16. Like eh, probably not like. <laughs> yeah. But one through 16, every person on this list, it could be like, oh, yeah, I, that person could win. Totally. Totally. The amount of the accomplishments in this group is, is insane. Yeah. It skews very like mid-century of Disney yeah. very heavily. But I think that's that makes sense that we interviewed and surveyed the D23 people because they're all about that type of history, right. not so much of the recency bias. But we have some recency bias and that that comes in here at the at the first matchup. I guess so. Uh, do you want to lead off? Do you want me to take I it? I mean, you, sure, I'll lead off. Do it. Uh, this is... We're starting off with, I think, one of the more difficult matchups on this bracket. Thousand percent. It's the number one seed, Howard Ashman, versus number sixteen, Dick and Bob Sherman. Um, this is the music. This is the battle of the music right no, here. Yeah. And you have to draw a line in the sand, and you have to make a decision. And you go, nineties or mid-century. Yeah. Which one? Like, which one better represents a legendary Disney music? Because here you go. Uh, so Howard Ashman. Uh, we didn't even talk about how Alan Menken's not on this bracket, but right. I mean, we're, we're, Howard Ashman, common collaborator with Alan Menken. Uh, Ashman, uh, lyricist and uh, producer of music from many of your favorite quote unquote Disney Renaissance films uh, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, yep. Beauty and the Beast, uh, really the big ones. Uh, on Aladdin, I believe Tim Rice was in the mix as well for yep. a lot of those songs. Uh, but the thing is, 
Ashman did like the big show stopping numbers of these three movies. Totally. Ashman wrote Under the Sea. Ashman wrote Friend Like Me. Yep. And Ashman wrote Be Our Guest. Yep. And so you and me talk about music from these movies all the time. I mean, we just, we break them down top to bottom, cover to cover. And I feel like we generally don't gravitate towards these kind of like show-stopping numbers. We'll be like, oh yeah, you know, beauty, the music and Beauty and the Beast is great, but we really like, you know, something there. Or right. yeah, Aladdin, sure, good music, but we maybe we really like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Prince uh, Ali Aladdin, or yeah, something. Sure. <laughs> uh, and maybe in The Little Mermaid, it's part of your world, okay? Sure. I mean, that's a show-stopping number in its own respect. But... um. You know, he's the number one seed for a reason. And when a lot of people think about the Disney Renaissance, they think about these three movies um, that are not named The Lion King. Um, and these are the movies that, these are the songs that people think of when they think of these movies. Uh, so, Under the Sea, it was an Oscar winning song. Best song in a movie that year. Uh, and Be Our Guest also uh, nominated. No, it right? won best original song oh, that it year. Did win. Right. 91. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's really all I have on Ashman, Disney Renaissance music guy. Yep. And then you got the Shermans on the other side who are the, uh, the mid-century guys. So, obviously, they were depicted in our favorite movie to always reference is Saving <laughs> Mr. Banks. Yep. Um, they're the songwriting duo that, that totally took together the mess that was the adaptation of that movie. They set it to music, uh, wrote lyrics, and yes, I, I would say saved what could have been a disaster of a picture. Um, Mary Poppins won the best Disney playlist bracket that we put together due to the fact that it is such a deep album. Uh, song to song, cover to cover, uh, it's, just, it's just so, so good. They won two Oscars. For Mary Poppins. They did. Little best song for Chim Chim Chori. Casual. Uh, and best score as well. Um, apparently, Super Cali, Billboard's Hot 100 in <laughs> August you, 1965. Can yeah. you imagine just like riding down the highway? You're like, oh, let's see what's on, see what's on the radio today. Flipping through the channels, it's Super Cali. You're like, okay, yeah, let's put this on for the next eight minutes of our ride. It, it, or, I can't you, imagine that. Because <laughs> we do it. <laughs> uh, Super Cali. There's like a TikTok trend for Super Cali <laughs> yeah. because, you know, that's what all the kids are listening to. Yep. Um, you know, of course, you've got Feed the Birds, which won our, uh, what, what bracket was that? Our Mary Poppins bracket. It yeah. Won that one. Mary Poppins. Uh, they also worked on the music on the Jungle Book, which I feel like is really the only other like big one that people would know. Right. Things like Bare Necessities, Want to Be Like You. Um, the, the the original Mouse Madness theme song. Mm -hmm. Um, then they they did stuff on Parent Trap, Bedknobs and Brewsticks, the Winnie the Pooh Winnie the Pooh music. Yeah. Uh, so all in all, four Academy Awards, sorry, four Academy Award nominations, mm -hmm. Grammy Award, two hundred songs for twenty seven films. Uh, and then they also, uh, you know, after the film, then you've got the park, right? You've got the park too. They're, they're doing music for the Tiki room. Yeah. Doing music for it's a small world. Yeah. They wrote one little spark for our boy Figman at Epcot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these guys were just doing it a little bit of everything, um, around the mid century in the Disney company. 
Howard Ashman, when you, when I think the general public thinks of Disney and animated movies, they think of those movies. Absolutely. Very, very worthy. Number one. See, but I'm going with upset. Whoa. I'm going with Dick and Bob Sherman. So many of these Disney legends had their hands on the parks in some way. Sure. Sure. Ashman's music plays in the parks. It's featured in attractions in the parks. But the fact that the Sherman bros were in there, they were part of the creative process that was the Disney parks. That puts them over the edge for me pretty easily, actually. Yeah. What I really like about Ashman in this matchup, though, is that he was able to take what was an incredibly floundering animation studio and through the power of music and storytelling with music was able to kind of bring them out of that. We talked right. a lot about that in the Eisner bracket where it's like, did Eisner or did Katzenberg or did Ashman and Mencken like bring them out of the Renaissance? And really like what Ashman brought to the studios was let's focus on story and not so much who we're going to get to do the story, right? right. Not, not the talent that's going to be singing the songs, not the, the talent that's going to be performing so you get the big name to come in to see it. We got to focus on the story. And that all comes from his Broadway background, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. Him and Mencken collabing on the adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors that won them in a ton of awards uh, for yeah. the first that first Broadway performance and really got them on the put them on the map. And so he comes in and he's he's changing not only how music happens in Disney films, but he's influencing the stories. He has story credits on almost every sure. film that he touched because he's not just writing the songs, he's writing the dialogue on the ends of the songs to help it flow throughout the movie. And then he's sitting there as a story consultant to be like, no, this person needs to find their want. They need to get their want. They need to lose their want and they need to get their want back. And in all of those stops, we are going to have some music. And so when you think about the Disney company, they were born on stories big time. And and Ashman did a, such a great job of embodying that. Uh, and and that's not to say that the Sherman brothers didn't, right? Because they they took s- difficult stories, four-hour long stories, and said, okay, so then where does music make sense? Where does it not only enhance, but doesn't impede on the story? And you look at something like Mary Poppins, where to us, their only, their only slip up there is that I love to laugh song. And I don't think that's their fault. They like force that scene in there, right? And the perfect nanny, maybe. Perfect too. nanny, maybe. But that's the, that's the kids I want song, right? So like they, we establish who these kids are, what they're right. looking for, who their personalities are. And that's very important. But they do it in such a, a Disney way for that time. While Ashman did it for as a Disney way of that time and that skyrocketed the company. So now we only hear those songs. When you think of Disney songs now, to me, I always revert to 90s Disney. Not hmm. only because I'm like a 90s kid, but they carried that formula throughout where everything sounds a little bit Broadway-ish. Yeah. As opposed to if you grew up in the mid-century, Disney music may sound a little bit more whimsical, a little bit more silly, a little bit more childlike. Uh, childlike. Yeah, exactly. And so that's more of the Sherman Brothers style. But what what puts the Sherman Brothers over the top is that they just had the bigger influence on the Disney company as a whole because of their ability to also work on things that were outside of the animation medium and work on and help tell stories in the parks and tell stories 
on screen and tell stories and experiences. They have an incredible lineup of work that they've done for parks all the way through Tokyo Disneyland, writing uh, songs for some of the parades there. Hmm. Like it, it's incredible. Their how their longevity and how long they were able to do things. Not saying, I mean, we lost Howard Ashman so early, and who knows what the, he could have done, yeah. right? Um, but the Sherman Brothers have just have just been doing it, and I think I'm going to agree with you, Ooh. Kyle Madsen. We have an upset in the first round. I said it at the top, like it wasn't going to surprise me if there were a bunch of upsets in this one. Uh, this one's not a shock. It hurts a little bit just because, like you said, the the Ashman songs are when I think Disney, like my brain goes to like Aladdin, never had a friend like me. That was just from the time I was small, that's just existed in my life. So I was leaning Ashman because of the purple personal connection, but you're not going to argue with the, with, with Dick and Bob Sherman getting through. Sure. Totally. All right, let's move on to this next matchup. It's the number eight, Alice Davis versus number nine, Bob Gurr. I don't want to spend too much time on Bob Gurr because we talk about him a lot on this podcast. Bob Gurr. Started out working as himself as an engineer, was inducted into Disney Legends in 2004, if you wanted to know. Uh, Started out as an engineer, worked for himself, joined Imagineering as a consultant, and then worked on anything that moved. Yep. Main Street Vehicles. Yep. Autopia. Yep. Monorail. Yep. Matterhorn Bobsleds. Anything that moved, Bob Gurr had his hands all over it. And he continued to do so for basically up until today. He he's just been as a consultant. He's he's worked on anything that needs some sort of mechanical help. And what makes him such a legend is that his background was never in that stuff. His engineering was like industrial engineering, and that's what he studied, got his degree, and was a consultant as. And so, oftentimes, he had to figure things out. My favorite, I I read a bunch of interviews with him because uh, he's doing them all the time. And so one of the stories he tells is about trying to figure out how to do the Matterhorn. First tubular steel coaster in the world. Yeah. How are you going to do it? So this is the quote from him in, in, in an interview with, I think it was allears.net. When Walt returned from making Third Man on the Mountain in Europe, he tells me that we are going to put in a Matterhorn with not just one, but two roller coasters inside. And that I'm to design the bobsled cars and design the track for the roller coaster. Fact of the matter is, I hate roller coasters. We had a year from start to opening day. We built the fastest way out of necessity. We bent the pipe track and used the wheels to speed up or slow down the bobsleds. So he's out here just being like, okay, I don't know how, but I know if I would do it, it'd be this way. And oh, oop, it worked. And, and that's just how he kind of made his <laughs> way through the company. Incredible. So Bob Gurr, he's an absolute badass. He's an absolute legend. He's up against Alice Davis, who was an incredible uh, set designer and dresser. So she was really in charge of dressing up all of the animatronics in all of the attractions. Uh, Mansion, uh, specifically Pirates. Uh, She helped to show the um, dress, the actors and actresses that that served as referential film for films like Sleeping Beauty, right? So she's like, okay, so Aurora should be wearing, at that time, Briar Rose should be wearing like this. So let's dress her like this. Let's make it so the light looks like this on her. So she helped the the rest of the team get a sense of what they were making, both in the animation side and on the attraction side. Um, She was married to Mark Davis and, and they met and he brought her over to Disney 
1963 when she officially joined it. And that's when she went to work on Small World. So she and Mary Blair are in there. Mary Blair's like, here's what these, all these little animatronic kids are going to look like. And you're in charge of dressing them from every place that they are from. So here's one person being like, I got to go country by country, region by region, and figure out what is best representative of these cultures and of these countries. And close to all of that, how all of those kids were dressed in the 60s are how they're still dressed today. Yeah. Like that's how well she was able to just nail it. Same with pirates. That's why all of the pirates look this exact same today as they did in their concept art, sans a couple of them, is because Alice Davis just nailed it. And mm-hmm. to, that is such an important part of these Disneyland experiences is making sure that these characters look lifelike, that the material they're wearing looks like something that that period would wear. Uh, The colors make sense for the scene that they're in. It's just such a a talent that goes unnoticed. And so I'm so glad that she made it onto this bracket so that we could chat about her a little bit. Um, My favorite quote from her is like, she was doing two things at once. She was doing Small World and she was doing Pirates. And so she said, I went from sweet little children to dirty old men overnight. Like that's just what, that's what her job was. And those are two attractions that will probably never leave Disneyland. Hopefully. Yeah. We all, we all can hope. So in this matchup, uh, who, who's the biggest legend? Who's the bigger legend? Uh, It's, man, it'll, it's tough to say. But I think that I'm going to have to give the upper hand to Bobby Gurr here only because his influence on how things move about the park is so important to the park's longevity. Uh, if you don't have the monorail, if you don't have the Autopia, if you don't have the bobsleds, if you don't have anything that moves, then you have a, just another community park. And yeah. he was able to figure it all out in a way that fit the theme for every place that it was in. He was the set dresser for vehicles. And I think that's super important when you're matching up these two park heavy Titans. So Bob Gurr is going to take it for me. Yeah, we love Bob Gurr on this, uh, this podcast. And I love a transportation attraction as well. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you talk about things like the monorail, things like... Uh, the, the, this is the sky. What was it called? The sky the skyway. The, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, like skyway I, to fantasy land. I, skyway I, to I, hate, I hate the Autopia, but you know, it's a thing. It's there. It all, prov- a people mover. Yes. You know, it all provides that sort of motion that I love about the Disney parks. Alice Davis. She, she was working in underwear. Yes. She was in, uh, she was making undies yeah. <laughs> before she was at Disney. Uh, she was at Beverly Vogue and lingerie house in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. Um, and she was just, she was just immediately kind of like a, a visionary, a prodigy of like fashion. I'm glad you mentioned uh, sleeping beauty. Yep. The, the woman who acted as the reference for Briar Rose was Helene Stanley. Yep. Have you ever seen a picture of Helene Stanley? I don't think so. Beauty standards have definitely like changed and evolved and reverted and stuff all over the years. Yeah. So it's like, it's a very interesting thing, I think, to study. I think Briar Rose is hotter than Helene Stanley. <laughs> I'll say that. I'll say that. That's all I'll say about okay. it. Okay. Okay. I, 
I had kind of a an awakening of sorts oh. when I went to the Universal Parks in Florida last month. Yeah. Uh, Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure has a Hagrid-like animatronic. Okay. And there's also some Harry Potter creature. I don't know what it's called. There's also like a cat in the hat ride yeah. that has a little, I don't even know you can call them animatronics. They're like, they're like figures that move. <laughs> and so as I'm like reading about Alice Davis and like Mark Davis and like all of these legends, really, I'm kind of appreciating how so many of these Disney legends are artists. Oh yeah. And they all started as artists and then they become artists that bring their visions into the physical space. Mm, yeah. And that's like so impressive to me. And I think that's the thing that separates Disney as a, a theme park experience from everyone else. Not that the people who are at universal aren't artistic or, you know, whatever, but the amount of thought that goes in and, uh, you know, the extensive background that yeah. so many of these people had before they even started working on things like animatronics. Uh, it just kind of shows what, what they used to lead with. I don't know that they do still kind of lead in, in the same type of way. It's kind right. of like you were an engineer is an engineer and an animator is born and dies an animator. Right. Um, but I think I'm going to give it to Alice Davis wow, okay. for that reason. Just because she, I mean, it takes a creative person to design the types of vehicles that Bob Gurr did, sure, and he made a lot of really important things work, but uh, something about the details is what makes Disney what it is, and right. Alice oh. Davis is like the embodiment of those details. So this one's going to Madsen for a tiebreaker. So what you said about details being key is something I, I believe a lot in because that's what separates Disney from any other theme park. Like it's not the, the roller coaster, the ride itself is not necessarily the attraction, right? Uh, it is what's going on around yep. it. Like in a vacuum Pirates of the Caribbean is very boring, <laughs> but as, as no, as theme park rides go, it is, yeah. but yeah. what makes it is the costumes and the set and the design. But on the other hand, Bob Gurr had a quote, which is an incredible flex, where he says, if it moves on wheels at Disneyland, I probably designed it. <laughs> like That's an incredible flex yeah. to have in your bag. And that goes toward everything at Disneyland, not just rides. It's what's going on around it. Like you said, the monorail going through Disneyland. Like, imagine Disneyland sans monorail. I can't. Like, right. It's, it's weird. So... It goes to Bob Gurr for me because I think that immersiveness it makes Disneyland Disneyland. Sure, he impacts that outside of rides. So, totally, Bob uh, Gurr going through. Bobby yeah, Gurr. You know, I will never argue a Bob <laughs> advancing in any bracket. This is a very pro Bob Gurr podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah pro absolutely Bob. pro Bob. Uh, moving on, the number four Tony B. Tony Baxter versus number thirteen. John Hench. Uh, John Hench. So all of these Disney legends have these like categories yep. that you can get like elected into. I don't really understand 
the categories thing if like only a certain number of people per category can be inducted per year yeah like i don't know what but john hench is a is a dual category he was elected in animation and imagineering he was inducted in 1990 and i believe 1988 was the first year they started inducting people but it was like one guy and then in 89 was like when they started yeah bringing I've, in like the like the big boys i think you're right um, could have been 8990. I, I don't really remember. I think it was 8089 though. Uh so John Hinch did did a lot of different stuff. You know, he's kind of a a, a multiple he's a dual threat, triple threat, quadruple threat, whatever you want to call it. Um the thing that we referenced in the intro, do you want to talk about that? Mickey Mouse? Mickey Mouse. This is the when I when I read this and I had read it before, but reading it again, it just brought me back. John Hench, incredible artist, obviously, which is why he's on here. But he sure. served as the official portrait artist for Mickey Mouse, the official corporate portrait artist for Mickey Mouse, which means that he painted Mickey's portrait for his 25th, his 50th, his 60th, his 70th. And his 75th birthdays. No one else is allowed to do the official portrait of Mickey Mouse during those years except for John Hench. And it's so funny that this cartoon mouse that they have locked up in Toontown can only have his portrait done by one person. And it is an official portrait artist. It is, um, it's so funny to me. The thing that the uh, kind of like Disney Legends website, uh, really makes it a point to say about John Hench is that he's uh he's down for anything. Oh yeah. He's like that he's like that buddy that you have that's just like, hey dude, what do you want to do? <laughs> down whatever you want, man. Like I'm down. Like I'm just happy to be here. I'm ready for anything. I'm down for anything. Uh this says that he was uh, an imagineer, philosopher, animator, designer, storyteller, and voracious reader and he read 52 magazines a month i don't know <laughs> it was such i don't know if that's don't like documented yeah. or i don't trust him for that yeah oh yeah that we that's got too many magazines that we i got, mean are there all... words in the magazine or is it just right. like pictures it's just, it's just playboys he just runs through 52 <laughs> playboys a month <laughs> i like it for the articles yeah. <laughs> um but that's kind of what a Disney legend really is to me. Oh yeah. And like, that's something that I love about Walt Disney as a leader is that he wasn't necessarily looking for specialists that were so good at one thing. He was looking for people that had the right creative visions, the right approach, the right attitude. And were just generally smart people. Yeah. And he just gave them all of his trust all of his resources and all the time in the world to just to just run with it. Um, and John John Hench is really kind of a an exa- a great example of that. Um, he started out in 1939 Crazy. as a sketch artist. He's worked on Fantasmic. Um, he did painted backgrounds on Dumbo. He did layouts for the Three Caballeros. Worked on special effects on Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and then after that, uh, became an Imagineer. And that was like that kind of like 1950 to 1955. Like that was, that was kind of the, the period where so many of these legends like transitioned. Right. And when you, uh, 
read a lot of these bios, it's it's the exact same. Oh, it worked a little bit on Dumbo, worked a little bit on Snow White, looked a little, worked a little bit on Bambi, and then Walt like plucked Grabbed them, them. <laughs> to do to Walt do was like, Oh, you can stuff. make a a giant squid underwater. Come up, come with me, John Hench. We got we got a big big park to build, and that's the and like this is like a whole other conversation, <laughs> but like the reason that Walt built Disneyland was because he needed to shift his creative vision because his studio wasn't what it was right. when he started. It was no longer the small family and frankly, the boys club that it was before Yeah, it was opening up. The animators had unionized. So he, he, he basically created like a new boys club and that was <laughs> Walt Disney Imagineering, uh, which is uh, kind of an interesting observation, I guess. Yeah. Um, but John Hench worked on Disneyland, worked on, uh, Tomorrowland attractions. Don't know which ones. Do you know which ones exactly? No, but, but I would assume. There weren't that many back then. It was I like would, the tinfoil. What is it? Hall uh, of Aluminum? Hall of Aluminum. I would assume that one of them was the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. Sure. Um, uh, allegedly worked on some of the attractions of the New York World Fair, 64 and 65, like so many of these legends did. Yep. Uh, Worked on the quote-unquote master plan for Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland. Don't know what that means. Helped conceptualize Epcot Center, develop ideas for California Adventure, Animal Kingdom, Tokyo Disney Sea. Yep. John Hench died at age 95 as a full-time Disney employee. Crazy. Started in 39. The man gave his life for Mickey Mouse. To the mouse. Um, and that's, that is wild. I mean, I can't imagine working for a company until working no, a period you. until yeah. you're 95, but to like never go anywhere else for what is that? 39 to 95. That's like 56 years crazy at one company. That's, that's wild. Um, so when you're talking about legends like that longevity, we gotta, we gotta factor that in there. Yeah. Uh, John Hench is going up against Tony Baxter. Um, and like, I really appreciate how much of kind of a generalist John Hench is, but this matchup for me is definitely going to John, uh, Tony Baxter. Okay. Uh, just because he was kind of a specialist. I mean, he was an Imagineer. He started, he also started at, at Disney when he was really young. He was 17 years old working, scooping ice cream at Disneyland. Yeah. Um, and was kind of like uh, mentored by Claude Coates back in the day uh, at, Age 23, 1970, he was hired as an Imagineer. Um, and he he worked on 20,000 Leagues Attraction in Orlando. Yeah. But his kind of claim to fame is developing Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Like, that was kind of like Tony's big uh, moment where he rose to prominence within Imagineering. That ride was fun, yep. a thrilling roller coaster. Yep. Themed well, but most importantly, it was very, like, crowd efficient. It it the the queue fit a lot of people in it ran a lot of riders through it yep. each hour which is which is all really important stuff for like managing a theme park so uh, he went on to develop other things like the seas pavilion the land at Epcot Center uh, Splash Mountain Indiana Nemo, Jones Indiana Jones Star Tours Star Nemo's Hot Box <laughs> uh, so yeah I mean. His his roster of like rides that he took the lead on is just too good. Yeah. So I have to go with Tony Baxter. It's not even just like 
roster of attractions. He was also working on like these huge projects that never got built, but became that of legend, like mm-hmm. Westcott. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? He wanted to Love make it. Westcott happen so so bad. Yeah, uh, Dumbo Circus land in Disneyland apparently was in the land that was supposed to happen oh. and he was spearheading that and th- I think this is the first time I've ever heard of that and so I need to to dive back in and then of course like Splash Mountain is his baby but he he's another one of those guys who I think is probably going to die as at least a consultant of yeah. the company sure. because even today with the retheming of Splash Mountain he's serving as like an advisor to the project so he's still here with them Um, One thing that you left out about John Hench is that he helped uh, Walt with the eighth winter games at Squaw Valley. And he helped to design the opening and closing ceremonies of the games because Disney ran all of that. And then he also designed the Olympic torch. Yeah. How crazy is that? They got like this, you know, jack of all trades, imagineer, animator, artist from Disney to design the eighth winter Olympic games torch. That is, that is also incredibly legendary, but I think that I'm going to agree with you, Chris here. Um, I think that John Hench is a Jack of all trades, but I think that that's what got Tony Baxter into Imagineering because he is that artist. He is that visionary. He is that, that person that wants to push things to the limit so much so that he's proposing new ideas to the company, which is, very Disney. I think that them trying to see, okay, so then what what can we do that's going to set us apart and what's something big that we can do? They haven't done a ton of that in recent years, but definitely their history has been, how can we change the game? And Tony Baxter has always been wanting to do that. And so I think that he embodies that legendary status. I'm going to agree with you, the number four. Kyle, what are your thoughts? Two things. One, well, actually, three things. One, going back, you guys mentioned Helene Stanley. She looks like Linda Shelby from Peaky Blinders. I don't know if you watch that show, but whoever does, she kind of reminds me of Linda Shelby. Yeah, Anyways. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, you feel me? Okay, cool. <laughs> Moving on. Um, all right, so Hench reads 52 magazines a month. Yeah? I don't trust that guy. <laughs> That's like, that. how many is that per day? That's like one and a half one a, a day. Ha- right. Dude just sits yeah, on the toilet for many. like five hours. <laughs> so what this tells me, <laughs> what this tells me is there is a boatload of untapped potential. John Hench was great. He deserves to be on this bracket. He deserves to be on this list. But 52 magazines a month gets some work done. That's all I'm saying. Hey, I listen. Listen, I, I think, understand that I you're going to be with done us. More. You're going to be with us until you're 95. But why don't you get some work done? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like figure it out. That's why he had to work so long is because he spent all that time reading magazines. But like how, like, were there even that many magazines that like existed back then? He read the, he That's read. my problem. Was was it like... What were you reading? Were magazines like new and like every time a new one got formed, he was like, oh, sh- I got to subscribe to that one. And he thought that it would be like a sustainable thing to just subscribe <laughs> to every magazine. Yes. He just didn't realize, honey, are my zines in? We need to go back in time and like in Back to the Future, Marty McFly brings the almanac. Like we should bring an iPad with Apple News for, <laughs> yeah. for John Hedge to be like, this is all the magazines in one place <laughs> for only $5.99 a month. Even though he probably paid less than that for oh, 52 yeah. magazines a oh, month. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, for sure. And I want to know, is it 52 different magazines or did he ascribe to a bunch of subscribe to a bunch of dailies? I don't know. doesn't matter. 52 is too many. I'm out on John Hench. <laughs> the other thing is what makes a legend the story, right? And Tony Baxter got, you mentioned it, 17 and a half. So first time, first, old, youngest you can be to work at Disneyland. He's scooping ice cream. And he made his way onto the backstage of Pirates of the Caribbean because he was just snooping around. Yep. Like going places he wasn't supposed to be. Yep. And that's how he got into Imagineering. That's bananas. He should have been arrested. Yeah. And instead he got a promotion. <laughs> yeah. You did it. You you broke so, the <laughs> you figured out the the challenge to get to promotion. Break into the rides. Shout out. Shout out. Tony Baxter. I'm uh, I'm looking at this Olympic torch, and I'm not gonna lie, this thing is very underwhelming. Is like <laughs> when you said John Hinch designed the Olympic torch, I thought it was gonna be like Tomorrowland architecture, like uh, uh-huh. like melded into like a torch shape, and it just looks like a normal torch. Okay, well, didn't say I like. Do you know it. why? What? Because <laughs> he procrastinated because he was busy reading <laughs> magazines. <laughs> the torch is just made out of paper mache of all the magazines that he's been reading. He's just like, they're like, hey, is that torch ready? Oh, yes. Yeah, hang on. One second. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's move on to this next matchup. It's the number five, Exitensio versus the number 12, Roly Crump, which this is this is a fun matchup. You have Exitensio, who is the most well-known for writing and the scripts and songs for... Uh, Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, He is very well known for those two things, but he started out with the company as an animator. He was an assistant animator on Fantasia. He went to war. He went to war. He went to World War II for Classic a few years. Disney legend. Yep, a part yep. of their story. It's like, I had to take a break to fight some Nazis. What's more? Yeah. The most Disney you can be is going to war. <laughs> <laughs> you either went to war or you worked on the war shorts. Right. That's, that's all yeah. you could do. Uh, and X took the, the war route. He was stationed in England, I believe, and didn't get to see anything. But he he was there for a couple years. He came back and here he is animating some of the most iconic title sequences that we all know and love, including The Parent Trap, uh, Babes in Toyland, and Mary Poppins. Uh, He contributed to uh, I'm No Fool, which is a series on the Mickey Mouse Club. He got pulled over to Imagineering, and this is what you're talking about. All these legends that are of this legendary tier start out in one area, get pulled to another, and get asked to do something and is able to just do it. So X had never written... A script before yeah. he had never written songs before and here's walt being like i want you to write the dialogue and music for adventure through inner space and he's like i don't i don't know what to do with that at all have either of you like listened to or watched a ride through of adventures through inner space i used to listen to the adventures through inner space ride through audio specifically every day after school when i was in like eighth grade and it was the best part of my day dude Kyle, have you listened to it at all or watched it? I've not. Oh my gosh. It is the scariest piece of of narration that you could ever encounter without knowing what you're going through. It's this dude who got shrunk down to the size of an atom. And now what you hear is his consciousness leading you through his experience. It is haunting. Yeah. And it is so beautiful. Like the wordsmith in 
that is Exitensio really just put his all into it and said, uh, maybe this works. And they're like, this is better than what we expected. Here's another ride. It's called Pirates of the Caribbean. Go ahead and get on that. So he co-wrote, he wrote the narration and obviously the song Yo-Ho Pirates Life for Me. And that really brought him over to Mansion where he wrote all of the dialogue for the ghost host and then co-wrote Grim Grinning Ghosts. Uh, he then went over to the Magic Kingdom side of things and he wrote the uh, If You Had Wings narration, which was that attraction over at, uh, I believe it was Epcot, but maybe it was Magic Kingdom, and then uh, Space Mountain as well. Worked on a couple of pavilions in Epcot Center, uh, but he was really well known for setting the, the literal tone for these yep. iconic attractions. Uh, this is his a quote from him and how he became a script and, and songwriter. Quote, eventually Walt sent me over to WED. He said that he'd been wanting to get me over there for a long time. When I got over there, well, nobody knew that I, what I was supposed to be doing. Then one day he called and said, I want you to do the script for Pirates of the Caribbean. I had never done any scripting before, but Walt seemed to know that's what I could do. I did one scene, the auctioneer scene, and sent it over to him. He said, that's fine. Keep going. <laughs> so annoying. Such annoying feedback. Hey, I, I just did this. Fine. We want the redhead. I need notes. Like, yeah, I need yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah, we want the redhead. Yeah. He was like, hell yeah. yeah. He's like, give me more. Give me more. It, it actually said... She, we want the brunette and Walt said strike that make the redhead <laughs> yeah, that was the note yeah yeah I like that <laughs> make her a redhead yeah <laughs> oh my god so he said he, he said keep going and then after the script was done I said I think that we should have a little song in there I had an idea for a lyric and a melody I recited it to Walt and I thought he'd probably say that's great get the Sherman brothers to do it there you go, Sherman Brothers. But instead, he said, that's great. Get George Bruns, who was a famous score writer for, for Disney animation, uh, to do the music. And so that's how I became a songwriter. So he gets tapped to just do these things. He suggests, here he is, having a vision and being like, Walt, this can't just be a wax museum of pirates. We got to also put some music to this and a song. And he did it. And that's what we ended up with. So that's the genius that is Exitensio. He's up against Rolly Crump, who is a weirdo, man. I sent you his book. And I did. You, yeah. you may or may not have read it. And I, read, I don't I read, know what era I read part of, of it. I hate books you were in, but you may have I've, been I've in I've the... never not hated books. <laughs> but it, he has this autobiography, and he was a wild man, dude. He had like a studio in, I believe it was Oceanside, that yep. got robbed while he was working there. And he like negotiated his way out of being robbed. He essentially like paid he like paid the robber to go away and not steal his like shop things because he needed it. And if you've seen photos of young Rolly Crump, my man's was hunky. He was like this big, big beefcake of a man. He would always show up in the in the Disneyland TV episodes in the background. He like was on the Tencennial episode talking about Small World. Yeah. Anyway, so he's the designer. That's that's who yep. he is. He is a designer. Uh, he joined the company in 1952 as an in-between artist, which sounds like the worst job you can get at the studio, uh, and an assistant animator on movies like Peter Pan, Lady and the Champ, Sleeping Beauty. 1959, over he goes to WED, and he's working on the Haunted Mansion. He's working on Enchanted Tiki Room, and he's, he's doing all of these different shows for Disneyland. What he's most known for is his work on the World's Fair stuff, including, well, besides the Haunted Mansion like concept, the Museum of the Weird, which was this weirdo concept 
uh, that he had where yeah. he was taking everyday items and making them very ghoulish and creepy. And and in the mansion, you would go through this walkthrough of the museum. And that's what kind of led to this show of kind of spooky, kind of cool that you get or kind of goofy that you get in the mansion today. But he's very, very well known for his World's Fair work, uh, specifically on It's a Small World. Uh, the facade of It's a Small World was very much his work alongside Mary Blair uh, but the Tower of the Four Winds is this legendary yeah. element of Disney history. And it was this huge windmobile that would move and had a bunch of propellers on it. And it was it was massive that held the sign for It's a Small World at the World's Fair. Uh, I don't rem- I didn't look into what happened to this thing, but I remember listening on many, many podcasts that the rumor is that like they couldn't dispose of it. So they broke it into pieces and dropped it in the ocean. Hmm, I feel like that's right. always just an excuse. And that's that Disney storytelling uh, at foot. But whatever. So it was this huge whimsical thing. And he was known for that. He was known for building these kind of intricate, bizarre, whimsy structures. And that led to the something like the facade of It's a Small World, including the clock tower that has the little show that comes out. So he's a designer. He has his hands in a ton of things, including designs of Magic Kingdom, helped with Epcot, designing the Land and Wonders of Life Pavilion. Uh, he, he is a, a legendary designer, uh, a bit of a weirdo, and we love him. In this matchup, I'm going to go bias. I think like Exitensio being this animator going off to war, nothing more Disney than going off to war, coming back, trying to continue with his animation stuff. He's working on like stop motion and babes in Toyland and, and with the parent trap title sequences gets asked to come over to wed and start writing scripts and music and songs. And he just does it has the vision to influence the story through the script. It's incredible. Exitensio is going to move on for me. I think of so many of these Disney legends through the like lens of, of what they did on the haunted mansion because so many of them were involved. Yeah. So it's like Harper Goff kind of like casually drew the picture on a map one time. And then Ken Anderson was like, all right, let's run with that. Here's kind of what I'm thinking. And then he gave it to Yale Gracie and Raleigh Crump. And if you all are unfamiliar with kind of like how the haunted mansion was created, Raleigh Crump was like, we got to go with like this whimsical thing that you're talking about, the Museum of the Weird, where it's it's not really scary. It's funny. Yep. It's kind of a reference to a lot of the spiritual things that people know about tarot cards and that crystal balls. Um, and a lot of that is is reflected in the attraction, you know, the the grandfather clock that has like the strange claw on it, the, yep. the kind of like distorted chair that sits near Madame Leota, the wallpaper with the faces the wa- on it, the, the best, yep. the best part of the haunted mansion, the wallpaper with the faces on it. And then Yale Gracie goes, no, we got to go. So we got to keep it straight down the middle. It has to be kind of scary. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the more traditional scary elements. And then they pass it down the line and it goes to Exitensio and it goes to Mark Davis and it goes, to Claude Coates yep. uh, and they, they bring in their stuff too. And Claude Coates is like, okay, we do this and we'll get to him later. But, um, it's hard because Raleigh Crump was like kind of this visionary influence on the haunted mansion, which makes me want to advance him so much. And sure. this element of whimsy is so important to this, these like mid century attractions that exist at Disney mansion, small world in particular, I have to agree with you, though, and go Exitensio on this one. 
I've referenced so many times on this podcast how meaningful like the words of these attractions were for me and my formation as a human being. So I have to I have to go with X, even though I do it sort of begrudgingly because I think <laughs> Raleigh Crump's like artistic influence yeah. uh, is so important to how we think about uh, like the Disney aesthetic. Kyle, X is moving on. Do we agree with that selection? Yeah, it's fine. I don't, I, 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 I mean, how do you pick one of these guys? Yeah. Like this is, this is one that jumped out when I was taking notes on it. It's like, who, who do you take? They, they both just, their resume is just littered with fundamental like Disney and Disneyland um, things. I have two things on this. Though. <laughs> okay. One, Exitensio sounds like a Harry Potter spell. <laughs> yes, it does. A thousand percent. <laughs> And I like that he embodies Walt's willingness to just like, like you guys said, just tap somebody and be like, hey, you are going to write the music, which is the most annoying type of boss. Yes, it, but it honestly is. Just figure it out. Like, what? That's great. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, but no, I. so he just really embodies that. So I, I think it's a good pick. Uh, Raleigh Crump, though, incredible vibes from this guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. On the D23 website, it quotes uh, Disney concept designer John Horney. He said, quote, Raleigh has a knack for bringing out the best in others. Trusting their talent, he encourages artists to push their creativity to the limits. It's a rare creative person who can let others run with the ball. Uh, show writer Jim Steinmeier added, quote, the idea is king with Raleigh. It doesn't have to be his vision as long as it works. I work in a field where it very much does have to be the person's vision. Yeah. And an idea isn't necessarily relevant unless it comes from a said that person. person. Yep. And that's so frustrating. <laughs> sure. And I hate it. And the fact that Raleigh Crump did not rock like that, that's the homie for life. Shout out Raleigh Crump. Shout out Raleigh Crump. Love that guy's vibe. <laughs> sure. Um, and for the record, Raleigh Crump's book is shaped like a magazine. John Hench would love it. <laughs> Oh, moving over to the other side of the bracket, we've got number two, Mary Blair versus number 15, Bill Justice. So Bill Justice, um, another dude's kind of a jack of all trades. Yep. He was inducted in 1996, a little bit late to the party, but he was inducted for animation and Imagineering. Uh, he spent 28 years with the Disney company was an animator on Fantasia, Saludos Amigos, uh, Victory Through Air Power, which is, <laughs> was, is that a propaganda oh, film? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, uh, Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan. But his uh, most memorable contributions in the field of animation, he was the creator and animator of Thumper, as well as <laughs> our boys, Chip and Dale. Oh, yes. Uh, he worked with X, yep. uh, like, I, I don't know how much was X and how much was Billy, but, uh, worked on the stop motion stuff, Mary Poppins, the, to the nursery to clean up, uh, what is it? Snap your fingers, snap your, snap your fingers, snap your fingers, <laughs> <laughs> a spoonful of sugar, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, but they do snap their fingers yes. in the sequence. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Snap your fingers. Uh, we need the, uh, the little John, uh, spoonful of sugar remix. Real yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's see. 
so yeah, he went on to to do what everyone else does. Got plucked for the amusement park thing. Worked on animatronics like the Lincoln animatronics. Some pirates. Some mansions. Some country bears. Dude, for the country bear jamboree. And and y'all, if you are not subscribed to our Patreon, <laughs> check it out. We did a a, a, a Walt Disney World review from yep. my trip yep. uh, to Disney World in June. And I had some things to say about Country Bear Jamboree. Mm. I appreciate Bill Justice, and I'm sure it was groundbreaking at the time. <laughs> but Bill Justice's engineering has is starting to show its age. Yeah. Uh, Bill also worked on America Sings. Dude, our boy, our show. America. America Sings. Uh, and working on all these different animatronics is an art form in itself because on the one hand you're like, Oh, like it requires like animatronic uh, or sorry, it requires like an engineering and uh, robotics background to be able to program it to do stuff. Yes, that's true. It also requires like a knowledge of art and like movement to make it look realistic. Um, a movie I would highly recommend is Pumping Iron, which is the documentary of Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and Lou Ferrigno uh, as they train for the Olympia. In one scene in Pumping Iron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is a bodybuilder and yeah. is roided out and he's huge, he's working with a ballet instructor. Right. Because when you're bodybuilding on stage, you're hitting these poses and the ballet teacher was saying like, like so many bodybuilders get hung up on the pose that they hit, but your judges are watching you in between those poses as well. So you need to be very fluid in your movements and like you need to be like a dancer of sorts. And that takes a creative mind to be able to interpret, to be able to put into the physical space. Yeah. Um, and so Bill Justice, I mean, that is tough stuff. And oh. I mean, he's working on the Hall of Presidents and Country Bears and Pirates where there are a ton of uh, animatronics. Very impressive. But th- I got to say, the thing that I love most about Bill Justice, he's a parade boy. Parade man. Uh, designed floats for the OG Disney Christmas parades. Uh, and he also he also sketched out some Main Street electrical parade concepts. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that about Bill Justice. Then we've got Mary Blair. Mary Blair, not exactly the like uh, technical, let's make robots type, but she was an artist that was in a league of her own. Yeah. Um, she was inducted as an Imagineer. Um, that a lot of that was just the her kind of like uh, creative visions or sketches coming to life more than anything. So, uh, the way the D twenty three sum summarizes it. Mary Blair helped introduce modern art to Walt Disney and his studio. She brought modern art to Walt in a way that no one else did. He was so excited about her work. Walt connected with Mary's fresh, childlike art style. The way she painted in a lot of ways was still a little girl. And Walt was like that. You could see he related to children and she was the same way. Yeah. That is such an important quote, I think. And this was the space that Walt was trying to build when he set out to build Disneyland. It was this very safe, very insulated space that preserved a sense of childlike wonder for children and adults alike. And Mary was uh, a shepherd in a way, no pun intended. That was a, (laughs) that was a Bible pun for y'all. But, um, but yeah, I love that. So obviously her claim to fame is 
it's a small world. Yeah. Uh, the facade, the clock tower, that's all Mary Blair vibes, uh, as well as the, the design of the animatronics, the sets, stuff like that. She also is a muralist. So you'll see, uh, her murals throughout the parks. Her big one is at, uh, the contemporary hotel yep. at Walt Disney world. She did work on films as well. She was an art supervisor on Three Caballeros, Saludos Amigos. Uh, she did color on Song of the South, which is the first time we've brought that movie up. Yep. But a lot of these dudes did do stuff on that. Make My Music, Melody Time, Dear to My Heart, Adventures of Ichabod, Mr. Toad, Cinderella, Alice, Peter Pan, all that stuff. Um, it's hard because Mary Blair seems to be kind of this very specific talent yeah. in a field of very general disney legends um against bill justice i think i have to go with mary i think i I will be interested to see if kind of a general disney legend wins this bracket versus one Mm. with a more specific skill set um i think i think bill's contributions are great but the it's a small world it's a small world factor is an important one. And whenever we talk about this attraction, I always kind of like overvalue it, I think. Yeah. But I do think it's important. Like it's an attraction that saw a lot of people ride it when it was at the world's fair. And it's an attraction that a lot of people ride at Disney world uh, and so, or Disneyland, any of the Disney parks. So like it's a thesis statement for Disney Sure. and, and Mary Blair is all over it. Yeah. I, I don't want to downplay the work that Bill Justice did on animatronics. Like in a time in which this technology didn't exist, he was not just like designing, he was programming these things. Yeah. All of them in these big computer rooms. He's making all of them speak or move to the the soundtracks, which had never been done before. Like that, that is that kind of pushing it to the next level that Disney is known for. But why I'm going to go with Mary is because have you have you watched um Light and Magic on Disney Plus? It's the documentary series about industrial light and magic, which is George Lucas's yeah. effects um team studio. I know so, Industrial Light and Magic, but I have not watched the documentary. So there's a six part documentary that six came parts? out recently. Oh my God. A little six epi. Uh and in one of the episodes they talked about how George knew what he wanted, but never knew how to explain what he wanted. He he was always upset with everything. He hated the first Star Wars because it was it wasn't getting to what he wanted. Um, but why it was so successful is that he had all of these people around him who took his words and then applied their vision to it and said, "Okay, he says this." but he probably means this and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. And that's what Mary Blair did. Not only with like this kind of childlike wonder that she applied to attractions such as small world, but to the art that she produced for Disney. She, she was integral to the success of films like sleeping beauty. Yeah. She was the color stylist. And if you watch that film today, like the, colors are beautiful and the way that she used colors was unlike anything that anyone had done before and what's really unfortunate is that and like i'm a i'm a mary blair stan she she grew up in morgan hill california go Go live oak acorns go sobrato bulldogs she's out here uh 
in the the book, The Queens of Animation, they talk about her her life a little bit more and what was going on behind the scenes. And she's married to Lee Blair, who was a animator at the Disney Studios, brought her over, and she was just better than him. <laughs> and they both ended up kind of hating each other and becoming alcoholics. And she had nice. to leave the studio for a bit after Sleeping Beauty. And that's why Ivan Earl came in. So like we get Ivan Earl, who is this famous background artist because Mary Blair was supposed to do it. And all of the designs that we see in Sleeping Beauty are pretty much hers that she never got credited for. So like she D23 wants to lean on this like childlike artwork that she does. And yeah, that's her bread and butter. But if you go through some of her art, like she has just the most gorgeous watercolors and portraits that she's done. Like she she's so much more than that. And, and knowing that makes this even more impressive. She can turn that part of her brain off. Walt wants this kids of the world thing. She's like, I think he means it like this and per- can present it to him. And that kind of forward thinking vision to say, I'm the expert here. I'm going to do it. I think that takes a lot in the Disney company. And that's what these legends are. They aren't just kind of the, the like rule followers. They're not. Walt said to build this thing. So I'm just going to build this thing. Walt said to do this thing, so I'm going to do it, but then I'm going to say, this is why we should do it even further. And Mary Blair did that over and over again. So I'm going to go with Mary Blair. And I'll talk more about her next time. Kyle, what do you think about our decision? Bill Justice being seated above the Sherman brothers is egregious. (laughs) That's that's, that's a tough job by the committee. It's fine, though. Um, Mary Blair is the correct pick. I'll dive in more next time. Can't wait. Cliffhanger. Love it. Let's move on to this next matchup. It's number seven, Claude Coates versus the number 10, Harriet Burns. I'm going to start with Harriet and I'm going to turn it over to you for Claude, Chris, because I know that that you're Claude Coates boy and I want you to go ahead and take the floor for that. But Harriet Burns was an incredible Imagineer. She designed and prototyped many, many attractions for Disneyland and Disney World and the World's Fair. She gets inducted into the Disney Legends in 2000, but had started working in 1955 on sets and props for the Mickey Mouse Club TV show. She helped to uh, design and, and kind of set design Sleeping Beauty Castle. Like It's one thing for uh, Herb Ryman to come in and be like, I'm going to draw a castle. And she's like, well, this is how it needs to kind of be laid out and set around uh, New Orleans Square. Haunted Mansion, Storybook Land Canal Boats, all the designs for the birds in the Enchanted Tiki Room. You're looking at Harriet Burns. She's out here understanding what these birds should look like, how they should be built in order to accompany all of the internal programming that they need, all of the different gears and, and, you know, shit, machine shit. You can see her on a lot of shows, including Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, because she's always in the background in like the sculpting room. So she was sitting there next to Blaine Gibson all the time. Blaine's out here like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sculpt the pirates. And Harriet's like, fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and make sure that these pirates look extremely lifelike. And that's her thing. She's setting the scene. So she was able to find a way to like paint these animatronics skin and hair and put their their hair certain ways to make it as believable as possible. Immersion is a huge part of these parks and it yeah. always was from the beginning. Walt loved to show. He calls his his employees cast members for heaven's sake. And here she is making sure that 
everything looks correct, not only in period, but as these things are supposed to be. For the time, the birds in the Enchanted Tiki Room looked incredibly real. It would have been unlike anything you had ever seen. Does it hold up now? Not so much. We know they're robots. We can hear them clicking and we can hear the, the gears moving as we're sitting there singing along. But for the time, like she's, she's doing things that other places aren't doing to, to any extent. Yeah. Um, it is such an artistry that we don't really think about all the time because it's like, oh, yeah, these are robots. But when you have to get down to it, it's like those robots work because of the work of all these individuals like Harriet Burns. I think she's a fantastic 10 seed. And totally. she deserves, she's, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, hit me with a little Claude Coates, please. A little Claude Coates. So Disney, uh, one of the things that we are also gravitated towards about Disney is the, is the roster of characters. Yeah. And you have people like Bill Justice and Mark Davis, who we haven't talked about yet, creating these memorable characters, animating them, bringing them to life. Talented voice actors like your your uh, Cruel Deville woman, I can't yep. remember her Betty name. Lou. Uh, and like those are the things that stick with us. But there's also the setting. Oh yeah. When we watch a Disney movie or ride an immersive Disney attraction, yes, we're we're exp- we're seeing and meeting and relating to characters, but we also feel so immersed in space and Claude Coates. That's his game. Uh, he background paintings, like that's kind of where he got his start. Yep. But before I say any more, I do have to mention that if we're talking about biggest Disney legend, our boy Claude was <laughs> six feet six inches tall. <laughs> our guy was our guy was massive. So he literally is the biggest <laughs> Disney legend. Um, but uh, yeah, he was a background painter. So so many of these early Disney movies, things like Snow White. Uh, Pinocchio, which is like, that's the one for me. Exactly that that uh, uh, a Bavarian village that that is the setting for Pinocchio. Yeah, so memorable, and that's what makes that movie feel so cozy. Totally, the forests in in Snow White or Snow White's Cottage, Fantasia, Dumbo, Saludos Amigos, Victory Through Air Power, Holland, Yeah, we're back. Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Melody Time, Song of the South, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Fun and Fancy Free, Cinderella, Alice, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp. Such a long list. And these are all places that we can distinctly think when we mention those movies. Alice in Wonderland, like... Like, yeah, okay, you you see the character Alice, but you also see the forest that she's in with all the signs in it and, you know, there's shadows in places and dark greens and dark blacks. Um, That's that's all all Claude. Yeah. That's all our boy. Backgrounds, color stylings, like that's the name um, of his game. So, of course, uh, he was plucked uh, to head to Disney Imagineering, uh, where he worked on the Grand Canyon Primeval World, worked on the Haunted Mansion. So the effect that I was going to reference was the floating candelabra. That's yes. that's Claude Coates. That that vibey stuff that really makes you feel like you are in the place. Um, and like that's really it's it's just such an interesting concept that like these rides are just three-dimensional animations in a way. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have people like Mark Davis who draw the cell with the character 
And then you have to have people like Claude Coates who do the background. And yeah. so you have both of them working on a movie. And then it makes sense that you'd have both of them work in real life too, where Mark Davis draws Madame Leota and then Claude Coates fills in everything behind her. It's honestly really cool. Uh, so we also worked on Pirates, Mr. Toad, Snow White, Scary Adventures, Submarine Voyage, uh, contributed on Magic Skyway, Carousel Progress, It's a Small World. That's that's Claude Coates, man. Yeah. Incredible, incredible resume. And he's one of those company guys. He was with the company for 54 years. Just don't stop. So in this matchup, I love this. This is a matchup of two detailers, whether it's the details of the sets that Claude Coates really stepped up. And I'm I think of Pinocchio when you have somebody as insane as Walt being like, we're inventing the multiplane camera. You're now going to have these kind of three dimensional backgrounds and you need to design not just this watercolor kind of 2D background, but it needs to have depth and detail so that as the camera gets closer to it, it shows up with that detail. Think about having to adapt to that and then getting over and doing set designs in a three-dimensional space that if you have a main character, what are the details that need to happen around them to really make you believe that you're in where you're supposed to be? Harriet Burns plays a super important part in that key in that that process, but the process is really owned by somebody like Cod Coates. So I'm going to go with the seven. Uh, same, uh, big big mansion guy, big Claude Coates guy. Harry, Harriet Burns did work on Mansion. Um, I also just have to shout out Harriet for living in Santa Barbara after yeah, retirement. Yeah. She was an SB gal, <laughs> getting turned. Uh, so Claude's moving on. <laughs> Kyle Madsen, do we agree with this selection? Yeah, probably based on resume. I gave Burns a lot of credit for being the the um the first woman to be hired full time by Walt Disney Imagineering. Yep. In a creative capacity. Yep. I think that I think that that definitely matters. But when it comes to Disney Legends, um, I mean. Claude Coates is it's it's not like I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and drag Claude Coates. So. <laughs> Let's drag him. Um, like I, like I said, when I when I was chalking this out, I or or jotting this down, I put Burns through hmm. uh, for that, just because I think that 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 aspect of it is is really important. But if uh, if someone's putting Coates through, it's not like you're wrong, right? Because Chris laid it out. <laughs> All right, next matchup. It's number three, Ub Iwerks versus number 14, Herb Ryman. Uh, Ub is is like the your best friend since childhood yeah. and like your your wingman for life. Uh, let's let's talk about him in a second, but we'll we'll start with with our boy Herb, not Brooks, uh Herb Ryman. <laughs> Herb was <Great> like moments. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, any uh, got some herb. Um <laughs> Yes. In 1953, <laughs> yeah, boy. In 1953, Walt Disney asked Herb Ryman to sketch an idea for an amusement park that would appeal to both children and adults. Over a single w- weekend, and with Walt looking over his shoulder, Herb took a small carbon pencil and illustrated Walt's dreams on paper. Within those two years, those dreams were transformed into reality, and Disneyland became the first theme park of its kind in the world that's a quote directly from d23.com <laughs> it sounds like it is but it's but it's that's that's herb that's herb ryman's like crowning achievement right there is yep. he, 
Harper Goff drew, drew the original Mickey Mouse Park. I'm not going to lie. <gasps> he kind of did the first one, but Herb Ryman drew Disneyland. And if you've, ne- if y'all have never seen the Herb Ryman Disneyland sketch, it's pretty freaking sick. Yeah. Uh, there's so many like lands and elements of it that never made its way into Disneyland, like the Lilliputian viewage, v- Lilliputian viewage, <laughs> yeah. Lilliputian village. Yep. That never, they, they, they've never they did anything like that, right? <laughs> um, uh, very cool. I mean, you can stare at that thing for 10 minutes and like check out all the different details that are in there. But I mean, that was his thing. He, he translated Walt's ideas uh, into drawings. Uh, he was obviously started as an art director like everyone else did, worked on Fantasia, worked on Dumbo, but uh, Disneyland was his thing. Did Worked on designs for Main Street USA, Sleeping Beauty Castle, New Orleans Square, uh, concepts for Jungle Cruise, Pirates, uh, New York World's Fair attraction, like Great Moments, and um, then went on to work on things like Epcot, China Pavilion, stuff like that. So, um... That's that's like his thing. Uh, it's how it works for me though. Uh, Ub is Disney's OG, inducted in 1989, and in the very first wave of uh, of people being inducted into the Disney Legends group. They met in 1919. How crazy! Uh, at the Pesman Rubin Commercial <laughs> Art Studio when when Walt and Ub were 19 years old. Uh, and they got both got laid off. Hey, it happens. Yeah, it, it happens does. to us. It happens. Uh, and they opened the iWorks Disney Studio Commercial Artists Studio. Yeah. Uh, allegedly, according to D23, they couldn't call it the Disney iWorks Studio because Disney iWorks sounds like an optometry office. Um, but they went, they were, they were in Kansas city, Casey boys. Uh, and in 1922, they founded Laughograms, and that was just, that was there the went. start. Yep. Uh, Ub followed Walt to Hollywood. You referenced the Alice comedies. Ub was all over those. Uh, Ub sketched Mickey Mouse for the first time. I mean, come on. I believe, and Disney will not admit it, those cowards, but I believe that Ub fully designed Mickey Mouse. I think that he was the person, like a Mary Blair, like a Rolly Crump, like an Exitensio, where Walt was like, our our little main character, our our symbol should be a mouse. And Ubworks, I, Ub Iworks was like, "Hold my beer, I, I got this right." Say now. less. And he drew him up, and he's like, "Here he is." And Walt's like, "Perfect." I drew that on a train ride back <laughs> after losing Oswald. Thank you so much, Ub yeah. Iworks. But I'm pretty sure that Ub designed him fully uh, by himself, sure. and that's incredible. Uh. The craziest thing, uh, early Disney of Iwerks accomplishment, the first Mickey Mouse silent cartoon, plain crazy, Ub animated entirely by himself in three weeks doing 700 drawings a day. Take that, John Hench, in your 52 magazines. Uh, um, allegedly. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly he did that. Yeah, allegedly. Um, and allegedly today the average animator produces 80 to 100 drawings a week. Yeah. And uh, did 700 per day. So that's sure, pretty sure, sure. freaking insane. Um, I, can, I mean, I can stop right there. 
Up, up. You can because it's uh, it's also up for me. And I have a lot to talk about with him because it goes beyond just like the formation yeah, of the sure. company, right? Like then he becomes the special effects wizard. We'll talk about that more next week because for us it's up. Kyle, did we make the right choice here? Yeah. Like this is the Babe Ruth of of Disney animation. There's I mean, he's unbelievable. Um I think like the case can be made that there's no Disney without a Byworks. Absolutely. I agree. Honestly, and spoiler alert, um, if you guys had been like Roy and Walt are not on the list, and also we didn't include a Byworks because it's too, too he's easy. that important, hmm. I wouldn't have argued with you. Interesting. Hmm. Wow. The third Disney bro. Yeah. And I and that's honestly the the beef that I have is like there's this disrespect that they give to up and that's kind of why he left to be honest but yeah. like the disrespect of like yeah we can't even christen him with being the the other Disney bro and he can't even be a Disney legend. They're like, "Nah, we'll just put him in the first class instead and so he's on this different tier. He should be up there with the brothers." Anyways, all right, let's talk about this final matchups. The number 6 Mark Davis versus number 11 Ken Anderson. This is kind of a powerhouse what, like artist. What, what a matchup. Artist matchup on. right here. This is I've been insane. waiting to talk about both of these. This guys. is insane. So we keep referring to Mark Davis and he is he's he's honestly he's like the president of Walt's Nine Old Men yeah. in my eyes. Like he he's this dude that Walt had this group of nine animators that he he relied on and then brought over to Disneyland. And for me, Mark was kind of the leader of that. So Mark was inducted into D23 Legend or the Disney Legends in 1989. He was an artist, an animator, and an imagineer. Uh, he he started as an apprentice on Snow White and quickly went over to start sketching stories and character designs for Bambi and ring the bell because it's victory through air power. He animated on other works like Song of the South, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, as well as shorts uh, like The African Diary, which I have a feeling is not probably too good these days, uh, Duck Pimples, and Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. That one won an Oscar, and I don't even know what that one is. I've seen that name like four times on this Disney Legends website now, and I've never heard of it. Uh, I'm going to have to take a look at that. Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. (laughs) I'm going to have to take a look at that one. Like everybody else, he gets plucked out of out of animation and gets put into Imagineering. And here he becomes the character designer. So he designs the the birds for Tiki Room. He designs yep. all of the pirates. All of the pirates. He's out here sketching how they should look, how they what they should be doing. Uh, all of the ghosts for the mansion. All of the animals for the Jungle Cruise. Like these are the those are the those are the big four. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. If you think about all the attractions, those are the big four in which there's so much artistry that has to go into it. And here he is doing all of the character design for that. That led him into getting into the engineering game and he starts working on animatronics. So he's helping to f- engineer uh, Lincoln, the Carousel of Progress animatronics. All of the It's a Small World animatronics alongside his wife. Pirates, obviously. Haunted Mansion, Country Bear, America Sings, We Are Back. And then his never built Western Expedition, Western River Expedition, which was supposed to be this bigger area like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, but it was supposed to be this whole thing. Uh, it was going to be awesome. So, so he's an artist through and through. He's has some of the most iconic work that you can see from a historical standpoint. That's not Herb Ryman concept art, but that is like character concept and designs. And almost all of them came true. 
If you look like if you look at a Mark Davis design concept, especially in pirates, you're gonna know exactly what pirate that is. He's incredible. Uh, up against Mr. Ken Anderson, and this is the ultimate Renaissance man, the ultimate jack of all trades. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 1991, and he was described as an architect, an artist, an animator, a storyteller, and a designer. He's out here just doing all of it. He started working with the Silly Symphonies, including Goddess of Spring and Three Orphan Kittens, with both, which both won Oscars. And then he immediately got promoted. So imagine just like working on these little, these little shorts. He gets promoted as the art director for Snow White, the very first yeah. full-length animation film. And that inspired some inco- iconic scenes that he went ahead and acted out himself, including the wiggling of his own ears that apparently inspired the, the dopey uh, scene in which he does that himself. So he's, he's really like invested in his art. He doesn't just sit as his, at his desk and does it. He helps to serve for, insp- for inspiration. So he goes on to be an art director on Pinocchio, Fantasia, Reluctant Dragon, uh, the best film of all time, 101 Dalmatians, <laughs> and then even Sword in, Sword in the Stone. So then he gets over into the live action animation game with Song of the South and Pete's Dragon and helps to innovate there and create some very iconic characters, uh, including Pete itself, uh, Elliot, and then Shere Khan in the Jungle yep. Book. So he has a bunch of other story credits. So he goes from art director to helping to inform the story on Cinderella, Jungle Book, Melody Time, Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and the Rescuers. Uh, and then he works with Mary Blair uh, to color style for Alice Davis for It's a Small World. After becoming an art director for all of that stuff, he then takes his talents to Disneyland where he becomes the design concept artist for all the Fantasyland attractions because he worked on all those movies as an art yeah. director. So he's like, okay, so I know exactly what we need to do. And, and, and at the time that they needed to build that thing up in what, 17 months or whatever, you bring in the guy that worked on it. So Peter Pan's flight, Mr. Toad's wild ride, storybook land canal boats. Like he's out here doing that. Uh, and then he works with Mary Blair and, and Alice on uh, the uh, it's a small world to set design all of that. So my man's did it all and he saw it all. Uh, I'm going to go with Ken Anderson. I love Mark Davis and I love what he does for character design. And I love that he was the animator that made his way up and then went over into to wed Imagineering, worked on all of these iconic attractions. But I think that like Ken Anderson feels more of like the personality that I would want as this Disney legend, the person that is willing to get out there and, and act out things and give examples of things and be, be with the people while also leading the people. And I see Mark Davis more as like, here's my thing. Go ahead and go do it now. So I like the, that Ken Anderson energy a little bit. Yeah, I, I am definitely leaning Mark Davis. Uh, one thing uh, you didn't mention about Ken Anderson he worked on the uh, proposed Equatorial Africa Pavilion. Oh, yeah, at Epcot, that's right. yeah. which is uh, probably should have been built. Yep. In retrospect, probably. Um, yeah, Mark Davis is the only only old man, nine, nine old men member that made this uh, roster. Yeah, like he's an idea man, um, and he does kind of do the like all jack of all trades thing. But yeah, you definitely think of him more as like a specific character creator, Cruella DeVille, Maleficent, Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, yeah. My girl. He did the ladies. Yeah. 
did the chicks. Let's go. <laughs> uh, he also did character design on Bambi, Song of the South, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland. But like you mentioned these these characters in these rides, you know, and like doing like every single one. That's super impressive because in pirate, I mean, there there's a couple of like notable pirates. Right. I don't know that you can name like the auctioneer and like the redhead are like the two and maybe the captain of the ship before it was Barbosa were yep. like kind of the two like named pirates. But in mansion, you've got the hat box ghost, Mark Davis joint, Madame Leota, Mark Davis joint, yeah. the hitchhiking ghosts, Mark Davis joint. And even for the ones that aren't named ones that are just, just a ghost in the graveyard, each one has this specific character yeah this specific way about them that you can look at them and you go oh just by looking at what they're doing or how they're dressed or what they look like i can infer their whole backstory like that is that is so cool to me and something that makes it's again one of those details that makes a disney a cut above the rest uh, so I'm going with Mark Davis, Kyle Madsen. We're ending this episode with a little tie break action. Yo, Chris. Yo. You swung me. Yeah. Oh. You did. Let's oh. go. Let's go. You did. Okay. I was on Ken Anderson. Okay. Oh, no. Because the, the resume, like the list of stuff is just unbelievable. And then when you find out that he was such a big part of fantasy land rides like Peter Pan and Mr. Toad and storybook land. Like those are all just fundamental, like Disney attractions right. to me. And that's why I just immediately kind of started leaning that way. But I keep going back to the immersiveness aspect of this. And that's what makes Disney special. And that's why you can ride pirates of the Caribbean for the 400th time. Right. And it's like riding it for the first time. Yeah. Because those details are just all there. Yep. And they hit you either either you notice something different or it's just so immaculate that you want to take it all in again. And the fact that Mark Davis helped contribute um, to that aspect of, of Disney, I, I'm going to go that way now. Wow. All right. We have the number six Mark Davis that moves on to round out our Elite Eight. So next time we're going to dive in and it's going to look a little something like this. The number 16 Sherman Bros are going to take on the number nine Bob Gurr. Number four Tony Baxter is going to take on the number five Exitensio. The number two Mary Blair is going to take on the number seven Claude Coates. And the number three of Iwerks is going to take on the number six Mark Davis. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us and lending your your historical knowledge to the pod. Uh, you've held back and you've said you've held back. You've saved some for the next episode. And I really look forward to having you back so we can hear a little bit more of that. I'm ready to party. All right, everyone. Well, you know how to reach us if you got something to say about these Disney legends. Is there a legend that we haven't even mentioned on this episode? We would love to hear your take on the matter. Please email us at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Discord. All those channels are linked in the description of this podcast. If you'd like to support us on Patreon by becoming a member of Jerry's gang, head over to patreon.com slash mousemadness and join us at the $5 level. We got Disney Jerry's gang trivia coming up. Oh, yes. This month. Uh, would love to have you there. Super fun. Super good time. You don't have to have your camera on. We know Zoom. 
anxiety, anxiety <laughs> Zoom fatigue exists. All right. Uh, we're down. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing all of you, uh, seeing y'all again next week. But until then, we hope that this has been a source of joy and inspiration to all the world.